Hi. <laughs> Welcome to 2023. Yeah, oh happy God. New Year from us. It's from, crazy. Yeah, our first episode of the new year. We're kicking off in a good Haven't way. Haven't talked to you guys since last year. I no, know. Oh my God. Yes, everyone. It really feels like it's been so long since we've yeah. podcasted. I feel like after the holidays, people emerged like new people, pretty changed, a little bit confused. Mm. And I feel like it's almost our, our two-year anniversary. So I remember like we started two winter breaks ago mm-hmm. yeah it was february february well, 28th or 18th we, we had a bunch of calls in like december and january we definitely recorded it in january probably because it took us so long to edit the first episode <laughs> because so the, te- the technology was just above our heads in a way yeah. it was quite hard actually technology was different back then <laughs> it was different yeah it really was, yeah. They've really optimized so many different like tools for podcasters now mm-hmm. over time. And so. we don't use any of them. We don't. <laughs> yeah, and pretty much. We actually became thing. like less, <laughs> we became more lo-fi and it's like somehow it kind of worked. Yeah. It's true. And we enlisted an editor at the request of dozens and dozens and hundreds <laughs> of people. Um, yeah, we have nice microphones. We have nice microphones. Shout out to Nick. Yeah. Happy New Year to him. Happy New Year. So, should we start talking about this episode? Like, to be honest, guys, we've been, like, talking for an hour trying to decide what to call this episode. Because we don't have, like, a cute and catchy name for it yet, but we can tell the listeners <laughs> what's going on in our head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can even, like, list titles that we've come up with thus far. Yeah. I think, like, we started with Frog and Toad. Mm-hmm. That was the original, like, seed planted by Alexi. Mm-hmm. And as we kind of moved forward, we realized that the Brat Pack would was, like, a very big idea kind of floating around in this episode as well in more ways than one. So we were thinking Brat Pack Attack. I like that one. <laughs> I think we should give the context of all the different ways that Brat Pack shows up because I feel like that was super helpful. Yeah, uh, that's a great idea. I can do that. So something we've also been talking about is how I've been living in the Gen X cinematic universe for the past year, reading a lot of like Brett Easton Ellis. I read The Secret History by Donna Tartt. I read the book Gen X, reading Prozac Nation right now. And these are all like (laughs) essential Gen X texts specifically about like adolescence, youthful malaise, like coastal elite colleges. And they all, um, I guess the, the Brad Pack is most widely known for its um, appearance in 80s movies through John Hughes films. So it was first coined in reference to a group of actors in their early 20s, like Demi Moore, Emilio Estevez. Molly Ringwald is one of them, right? Or- Molly Ringwald. But she was um, she was almost like a late joiner in it, because I think it started with the movie uh, St. Elmo's Fire. Yeah. I read that it has to do with the overlap between the two casts of St. Elmo's Fire and The Breakfast Club. So, mm-hmm. yeah, these were a group of young actors, and their name actually came from a name that the tabloids gave a group of singers in the mid-century, like Frank Sinatra. Couldn't name anyone else on that list. Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, Errol Flynn. <laughs> yeah. Errol, they were, like, Errol at the Flynn. store club and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and they were, like, gallivanting probably in New York and being yeah. sluts. Mm, crooners. It's, like, an old Hollywood overlap because like Humphrey Bogart mm, and yeah. Lauren Bacall were like at the center of it. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the 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 main definition of the brat pack. But then this idea of the brat pack shows up all across this 
phenomenon we're trying to discuss was there was also a another Brat Pack happening at the same time in the literary world with the likes of Donna Tartt, who wrote The Secret History famously, and Brett Easton Ellis, who wrote American Psycho, and a lot of other books that center around um, this aesthetic that we're trying to play down. And also within the movie Metropolitan, directed by Whit Stillman in 1990, it follows a group of kind of like waspy Upper East Side college students. And their friend group in the movie is called the Rat Pack. So like, there's this crazy ecosystem of the word Rat Pack. So we figure it must be important. Yeah. yeah. Because it's come up a lot in our research. Yeah. And it, it's really tied to like so many things that we're trying to tie together on this episode. Mm-hmm. And I think um, another idea was Lost Generation 3. Because... <laughs> It seems like a lot of people in the 80s that were kind of um, heralding this vibe were obsessed with Lost Generation writers like Ernest Hemingway or um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, Gertrude Stein was a Lost Generation writer, but I don't really think... She was old as fuck, though. She was like the old lesbian. Yeah, she was the the baddie bag lady of, of the Lost Generation of writers. Yeah, she was like their mentor. And I feel like that's not, she wasn't really an influence on this, but I, when I think of Gertrude Stein, I think of like New England colleges. Cause that's like, I feel like the only place people really read her um, very seriously. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, no shade. She's, she's nice, but I don't know. Wait, I just, I, I just want to say I had, I've had an idea, which is that have you guys ever seen, I can't remember what form of media, but there's like some show where Lena Dunham plays Valerie Solanas. <laughs> Yeah, what? my jaw is on the floor. She she murders Andy Warhol in the I show. She'd be better at playing Andy Warhol. For some reason. <laughs> but then I was like, wait, I feel like she could play Gertrude Stein at some point. Oh, wait, yeah. Jesus Christ, this, that's genius! Oh my God, we Thank need to get you. somebody. Oh, that just floored me. That's actually Thank such you. a good idea. Thank you. Wait, she plays Valerie Solanas in American Horror Story. An American, yes, Horror American Story. Horror Story. Yes, it's like it's like such a crazy casting. What season is it? I didn't even know this was a season. American Horror Story Cult. Oh, cult. Yeah, that was like during like 2016 uh, and stuff. Because everyone... no, that was election. No. Oh, oh my god. 2017. Wait, 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 wait. It's the one that's about like incels and yeah. Um, Evan Peters plays like an incel-like figure, mm. a Joker-esque figure oh, yeah, who okay, starts okay. a cult. And I, I guess she's in, she's in some sort of flashback. But yeah, what? Okay, I, this is the lost season. This is the lost generation of like American Horror Story. <laughs> I actually recommend everyone watch it because it's really crazy seeing her play Valerie Solanas in American Horror Story. Yeah, that's why I was like, there was some show because I thought it was American Horror Story, but I was like, why would it have been American Horror yeah, Story? Ryan Murphy's literally like a demon gay. Um, yeah. but re-Lost Generation 3 uh, so like the original Lost Generation of writers was like you know very classical writers like in the 20s and then people also referred to Gen X as the Lost Generation and that Lost Generation is like really obsessed with the other Lost Generation when you think about mm-hmm. it they're kissing but I feel like we're going into a third Lost Generation like people whose adolescence and like coming of age overlapped with um, like the COVID pandemic because they are feeling like levels of disillusionment and alienation unlike the world has ever seen probably and also like it's exacerbated by chronic internet use but mm-hmm. our brains are like overheating we can think about this. yeah we were really having like a very intense round table can we talk it. about fashion since yeah maybe that will be like a legible entry point absolutely yeah guys i wanted to say the last name that i came up with wait what Ooh, was the last one go ahead Don't yeah. for- you forgot it's 
the United Colors of Bennington. Bennington, that's because true. all of the the literary brat pack all went to Bennington College in the early to mid eighties, and literary interpretations of Bennington College are like throughout all of their work. Mm. And then also this also ties into like we'll get into this later probably, but like there's definitely a through line slash predecessor of dark academia within this, and mm-hmm. obviously those East Coast elites liberal arts schools are really essential there as well so into the fashion yeah alexi why don't you kick off a description of the clothing because i think you wrote a lot of um interesting things about it in the documentary oh yeah so i would say that one quintessential part of it is just like slouchiness as well as a kind of haphazard layering that's like winter american dressing because i think we associate this aesthetic or style a lot with New England and the American Northeast and maybe like the Pacific Northwest if we want to stretch mm-hmm. it out that far um mm-hmm. so a lot of like slouchiness but then also a lot of like classical elements because as we've discussed it kind of like is a through line of you know an academic history a literary history and so today what we noticed was um just like the desire of young people to dress kind of like an 80s protagonist so a lot of like high-waisted pants and billowing shirts it's kind of an androgynous silhouette um but it's also like very untailored also i think um this is very global north core because it's very like british as well and it's all like northern united states mm-hmm. flannels and yeah i think like the the color palette is really interesting given that like i guess most of the inspirations behind this happened in the 80s and like the 80s is perceived as this like very neon technicolor bright um explosion and there is this other side of the 80s that has persisted on pretty strongly throughout many, many generations. That's more muted. It's more fall color palettes. It's a lot of browns, greens, like burnt orange, um, Ralph Lauren, preppy. And it's it's very like practical for like the cold, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I think those like hats, you know, like the South Park hats that have like flaps on the sides. Mm, that yeah. was definitely on the on the menu sherpa lots of sherpa yeah i feel like sherpa is having a moment like another moment i feel like every two years there's like a sherpa moment and we're in the um seasonal sherpa moment right now yeah the clean girls are really obsessed with sherpa like the sherpa mini uggs and stuff Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, it's true i actually have this like crazy full it's like a it's like a coat that's literally made out of like a full sheep or something it's this crazy sherpa that was my Mm -hmm. mom's partners when he was in like prep boarding school in the 60s and it's actually so crazy and it really like takes you back to that time but yeah I think the drabness is like super interesting because I think it definitely ties it back to kind of like some of the preppy elitism that comes from like that dark academia and like Bennington flavor I guess Mm -hmm. I saw this like interesting NPR podcast talking about this which is like that um it was talking specifically about the Secret History and Dark Academia um, from December 2022. And they talk about how, like, in the book, The Secret History, there's people there that are still dressing like it's the 40s. There's actually not that many references to the 80s and The Secret History. They said, you don't have to be researching very far to work out that it was probably said in the early 80s to mid 80s, but there's not a lot of references to things that would be particularly potent then. I don't think there's any reference to anything like MTV. If you read other books that are very much set in that era, then you'll hear about things like body stockings or leg warmers. So there is like a timelessness that I think is really attractive to people because it's like eschewing that like turquoise eyeshadow, 
And yeah. we've also seen those other 80s elements that are a bit more day glow esque. And that's like an important <laughs> distinction, I guess, for this episode and like yeah. in, in different contexts. Well, I think that's just because the that vision of the 80s is just so costumey. Like it's what someone, sorry about that, it's what someone would wear to like an 80s costume party. But also, yeah, I'm glad you said timelessness because that seems really important. And it combines so many like vaguely vintage elements. I mean, Gen Z has brought back things like neckties and sweater vests that are these kind of like formal fashion elements, but are wearing them and styling them in a kind of like subversive and casual way. Also, I would say that this look is kind of like anti-fashion because it's really achievable through like hand-me-downs and thrift shopping. And I feel like it's almost kind of signifying like a resistance to trends and a resistance to like the fashion machine. But also like having really nice hand-me-downs is such a class signifier in itself because it's Mm -hmm. like your parents have like nice clothes that you're like still wearing and they aren't like buying clothes from Sam's Club or something. Yeah, that's like a point in the secret history as well is that this group of students that's like obsessed with the classics that the book follows are obsessed with wearing these really shabby clothes basically from like the the 20s and the 40s Mm -hmm. but people think that they're like really weird for doing it so it is kind of like anachronistic in a way that i don't know i this is also like taking me back because my first ever tiktok that i had that went like that got big was about dark academia and it's like weird to see how much of it is still similar from that time in like 2020 when i made that tiktok because i remember being like this style is actually like accessible which was interesting because so many other tiktok styles were like not that accessible from like a thrift store Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that this style has kind of persisted for so long. Like there is like kind of a 90s version of this as well. I feel like in the late 90s and stuff, there's like reality bites, like Winona Ryder, like big flannel, like big yeah. dance girls, that sort of thing that wasn't truly too Y2K. It was just kind of anachronistic. And then in the 2000s, there's like, like smashing pumpkins, like that type of thing. Yeah, Gilmore Girls, I feel like was a similar... Exactly. Aesthetic, like Connecticut small town. Yeah, it hasn't really died down at all. It's just kind of always, if you're in any type of situation where you have to be like a diverse group of people, there's always going to be like one person that's going to be dressed like this, like no matter what time period you've been in, which is interesting. I think it's just a really practical style mm-hmm. and it's really flattering for most body types. And it's also very comfortable. Like it, it signals like a type of like shyness and bookishness. And it's also very comforting, I think, for people that dress like this. They maybe are younger and are still working out through, like, body insecurity or something like that. You're able to, like, kind of wear these bigger, more androgynous things. It's, like, the most socially acceptable form of just, like, signifying that you are just, like, different (laughs) than others. But, like, not in a way that really makes you stand out. Like, it's kind of a gray man strategy kind of thing. Yeah, I made a list of... I don't know, like, we talk so much about, like, Gen Z fashion, but the more I've just been, like, in the world observing how young people actually dress, I would say that oversized proportions are really characteristic of the younger generation, and I think it has to do with a lack of body confidence, like you said, like a kind of please-don't-perceive mentality, but also, like, gender-questioning vibes and also Mm -hmm. lack of occasion. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, if you grew up going to online school Mm -hmm. and then there's not really a sense of like occasion dressing Mm -hmm. and then also just like an anti-tailoring mentality like the way most people buy clothes isn't really like going to stores and trying stuff on anymore it's more like blind buying stuff online or thrifting Mm -hmm. so i think there's like a really anti-tailoring mindset because like people don't really understand the concept of clothes like fitting to your body like i feel like that's something that i genuinely discovered 
maybe in the past like two years, the subtle differences of things actually fitting you instead of just like buying stuff that's the size. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah, it's also the difference between seeing like a trend online and wanting to like adopt it while it maybe not being something that's like particularly flattering to you. There, I, I think about this a lot is I feel like Zoomers have sort of lost the distinction between stylishness, like good fashion and good costuming. Like, so much of Zoomer fashion is like really on point for like a movie costume type thing, like a right? Music like video, maybe. Or a music video. Like it's very on point for a very specific like media setting and stuff. But when you see it in real life, I and mean, we've said this a million times, it's very jarring. It doesn't really fit. And it's also really easy to put together. Like you don't really need like any type of instinctual or like creative impulse because there's so many examples of it like all across the media that you could just kind of mimic what has been done over and over and over again. I guess, yeah, this is this is almost like an anti-fashion like reaction against that. It's a way to sort of like not really fall into the trappings of like the hot pink, like mini skirt, like demonias <laughs> or like moon boots, like, like complex. Yeah, I think it's just pretty like timelessly cool. Like I, I don't get intimidated by people often, but this is a style that I think also is more widespread than anything we've ever talked about. Like last time I was at home, I was driving near the mall where I live and I saw a group of like four teenagers that were kind of dressed like this, like in flannels and like slouchy clothes. And they all had kind of like shaggy hair. And they were just like, obviously probably good, like going to smoke weed behind a building or something. Mm-hmm. But I was like, huh, like they're onto something there. You're like, should I go with them? Yeah, I was like jealous. <laughs> I was like, I don't, and hollering. I don't, I'm not the type of person that's like, OMG, like so intimidated when I see young people in public. But I was just like, I don't know. But I did kind of have a use like that already. So I was probably also feeling like a bit nostalgic. Yeah. I would say on that point, though, I think there's such a like a youthful like joie songs around this look <laughs> that I think that when you see kids dress like that, because it's so associated with like John Hughes films and these depictions yeah. of like high school in the 80s that are like really classic now and very hyper nostalgic people. You are like, oh, my God, like the way their hair bounces, the melody of the wind going by. Like mm-hmm. it's like. And on that note, like, there's this TikTok account called Scarlet Foxes, which I think is, like, the most viral iteration of this, which is literally just these, like, this group of teenage boys sliding around a forest with electric guitars that are not plugged in, and they have really floppy yeah, hair. Yeah, they're, like, performatively playing guitar. <laughs> and then, like, they, they have the TikTok track on, which is, like, there's a couple songs that are really formative to this aesthetic trending. This charming man. Yeah, this charming man. Um, what is the other one? Everybody wants to rule the world by mm-hmm. Tears, for, Tears fears. for Fears. And then Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears is really viral right now. And it's like just them lip syncing to it. But like when you and it's like it's kind of like you would describe this as poser behavior because their their <laughs> bio is like music coming soon. So it's yeah. like they're literally like a band. Yeah, they've literally gone like, viral by like pretending to be other bands. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. But like it's like it, like if you and I saw someone comment being like, "This is the same thing as people like showing off their skateboards who can't skate or something." And it was really mm-hmm. interesting, but it's really captured the hearts and minds of everyone. And like Tears for Fears stitched or like duetted their TikTok with um, "Everybody Wants to Rule the World." Mm-hmm. Those videos do make me happy. It's like, addictive. Yeah. Yes. It's a really cute vibe. Like, I'm such a hater usually. And, like, I get that they're, like, huge posers. But they're, like, wearing, like, button-ups and ties and cardigans. And they're having fun. They're, like, running around the woods. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it gives the same trend as, like, uh, you know, the, like, baby that's twirling around in the forest. And everyone's, like, this was me as a baby. Yeah, it does. I think there's just, like, a cheeky, like, forest elf, like, playful behavior that's going on. 
Yeah, the music is definitely a big part of it. Also, like, Depeche Mode is kind of going viral on TikTok right now. Yeah. Everyone's like, I wish I could be, like, in a club in the 80s where they're actually playing music like this. Yeah, I think also, like, they, a lot of the people I've seen going viral for this are boys, like Biz pointed out. But I think it's interesting because in, most of the time when I see this in real life, it's a lot of girls or non-binary people wearing this and not any, mm-hmm. like, boys. But this is um, going really viral because I think this is a aesthetic specifically tailored to the female gaze, the oh, zoomer, definitely. the zoomer female gaze, like very specifically because I think zoomer girls, their beauty standard for men is like extremely um, non-threatening kind of straight twink, you know, like, <laughs> you gotta, no. no, it's surreal. All the comments are like, I can't tell if like, I want to be with them or if I like want to be them or just like yeah. these vaguely kind of like eggy things that, where they're like, this is the type of masculinity that like. I want to see in the world like the cheekiness and also like I think Timothy Chalamet and Little Woman like his character is kind of the Uh, same thing like it's it's just a very crushable character yeah I think it's I think there's a lot of things that can fit into like the zoomer thing here which is like in the 80s like a lot of the movies that came out of this especially like Metropolitan and stuff they're very similar to a lot of books out of the romantic and Victorian age, which a lot of those books were comedies of manners where a lot of them were based off of misunderstanding or strange, like minute social interactions that have gone wrong. And I think that kind of like appeals to the Zoomer autism that has kind of come out of the lost generation of people that it grew up on Zoom. Um, And I think also this in the eighties, this was sort of formed as an aesthetic tonic to the Patrick Bateman, Gordon Gecko-esque vibe of the 80s, which is very new money. You know what I mean? I don't know if we want to get into that later, though. Well, in the Brett Easton Ellis universe, because all of his books overlap with each other, Patrick Bateman has a younger brother named Sean Bateman, who's like in his books, especially like the rules of attraction. And they're supposed to be like opposites. Like, um, Patrick does everything to be like this perfect yuppie. And then Sean just like smokes weed at the literary equivalent of Bennington and (laughs) is like indie and rides a motorcycle and has like gay sex and Mm -hmm. um, is always like cracked out all the time. Yeah. So I definitely think they're, they're foils. It's canon that they're foils to be honest. It's true. And like, I think right now Zoomers, there's, Biz, you pointed out, there's like a, God, what is that guy's name? The the one that like wears the bell-bottom pants and has like a shag and he just like Oh, well, there's so around. many of them. They're like, yeah. they're <laughs> increasing in exponential numbers and Dude, they are performing that? mitosis. Yeah, <laughs> they're so like, scary. they remind me of the nematodes from Spongebob. I'm like, where do you think <laughs> they're, they're so sinister. Yeah, you guys know what this is? Like, it's the guys with like shag mullets and like the bell-bottom pants and they'll be wearing like a really tight shirt and then they like do the specific type of TikTok where they like press record and then they like walk back and then like tuck their hands under their armpits and then like turn to the side and do like a side profile like just fit check 70s mm-hmm. beer they are literally massive skinks though. Mm-hmm. like huge huge skinks like I feel like this is like the sluttiest male behavior that I can pin down besides like when guys would wear like gray sweatpants <laughs> yeah. because like it's literally it's so formulaic and like oftentimes there is like some weird other el- promotional element to it like they'll be like people say that I look like Jim Morrison and they'll make like a video where it's like Jim Morrison's <laughs> face and their face so it's like always like, like so shameless it's it's like extremely extremely um shameless for yeah. sure yeah that type of person I could never have a crush on but I would have a crush on like the 
like tears for fears kids in the forest wait you know? alexi we, we definitely should edit this out but like why is this giving no effector oh my god this is this is literally no effector and then the other one the 70s like queer reader is ATL grandma yeah we should leave that in actually yeah no we should no yeah. noah i think literally like he started wearing like very 1920s little circle <laughs> glasses and i feel like i've seen him wear like a trapper hat before like the holden caulfield hat yeah. i love that and he's also, like, reading too much. Yeah. He could solve all of his problems by, like, maybe reading a little bit less. That's, like, a lot of people. I don't know. I think the 70s, like, shag mullet guy that's thirst trapping on TikTok is, like, the Patrick Bateman of things. And Oh, yeah. But also, the thing is, it's, like, you'll see so many people that are, like, oh, my God, this is literally me and it's Patrick Bateman. But, like, people don't – and people take it super seriously. They're, like, did you know that this book was satire? Like, you're such a fucking psycho. Like, But it's, like, dude <laughs> – like, I, people are just saying that because Patrick Bateman had, like, an elaborate skincare routine. Like, it's nothing to do with his personality. Like, it just seems like people are yeah. saying, this is literally me, because he was just, like, very obsessed with his own, like, physical appearance. And also, he was, like, alienated, and, like, all of his monologues were, like, how he didn't feel like other people, which is the whole Sigma archetype. Like, yeah. he, like, Gen Z boys are, like, obsessed with, like, Sigma behavior. Yeah. But I feel like the answer is that they need to read Catcher in the Rye, because, like, he was a Sigma, but in, like, a less toxic... Like he was definitely toxic, but like soft boy sigmas. We need to oh my god to reintroduce them into society. Soft boy sigmas. I mean, I think most. I mean, because it's like there's like a symbology right now happening on TikTok where everyone's like, you should be a simp. It's like sigma sigma behavior to be a simp. And I feel like the like floppy haired like eighties boy is literally like the biggest simp in the world because he's gonna leave you like dried flowers at your doorstep and write you romantic love letters and like I don't know. That's what you would think, but guys like that are really boring in real life. And they're dry at texting. No, they are. That's so true. Yeah, they're thinking too hard about where the period goes. Guys, guys, <laughs> we're forgetting something, though, which oh, is that this was, like, this style was so popular in the 2010s, and it kind of different version, like mm-hmm. the Mac DeMarco fan. And yes. that was oh. literally the template for all of the first wave of uh, meme accounts that would make fun of, like, quote-unquote soft boys. Soft boys. And yeah. I was, like, thinking about it, I was like, why is this? And I really just think it was the most defined mass indie boy at the time when meme accounts were developing in the early 2010s. Like, I really think that's yeah. what the reason is. Well, I think it was just because, like, Tumblr kind of trained a generation of men who used Tumblr, which were there, there was like a surprisingly large amount to just be obsessed with Morrissey. And so they were all very much like obsessed with like more poetic lyrics and mm-hmm. um, muted music. Um, but the thing is, Mac DeMarco's lyrics were not very like poetic. They were like yeah. really low IQ. So that's yeah. why I don't, I don't think he's like a valid part of this lineage. And also like so. anything to do with skateboarding, not valid. Anything to do with videography or screen printing, <laughs> not a part of this either. Like, I think it really should be like the four traditional arts of like literature flowers like doodling and i don't know like maybe playing violin (laughs) (laughs) but i like don't agree i don't agree because i think really yeah because you think you can skateboard and be a part of the brown no 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 i think you're totally right with like all the criticisms of it but i think it's definitely part of like the lineage like Mm. mac demarco literally brought back 80 synth wave which is like this is music is 80 synth wave I was like, whenever I first wrote about this in the doc, I like deleted all of it, but I wrote this whole thing about that because it was like, I do remember that being like a huge part of the early t- 2010s. And that was like the first wave of softboyism. And there's like egg punk versus chain punk discourse. And I guess this is more like egg punk, right? That was like Who's more that? like egg punk. Oh, God, it was like so cringy. <laughs> oh God, but like, no. it was like, yeah. <laughs> 
But this is like a really seriously kind of cringy era of times where everyone was like, I'm egg punk. No, I'm chain punk or whatever. But it was like Mac DeMarco was like egg punk oh. and like people who went to like, like fucking, I don't know, like, like really uh, scary hardcore shows or like everyone left with bloody mm. noses. That's chain punk. Okay. And like, so there is like a lineage of this, but I think it's not as hyper specific on the Brat Pack and on like, yeah. the literary vibe. It's just more of like a general 80s synthy vibe. I would say yeah. also Mac DeMarco ended up going into this weird category of like dad core and like degeneracy which is not mm-hmm. part of this because this is about like forever young slash aging gracefully i think versus yeah. back to marco was so about like degeneracy like what's it called freaking out the neighborhood is what the names of one of his songs he used to like stick drumsticks up his butthole at shows yeah he like, aged prematurely and also i think the hair is really important here as well because during that time i feel like what boys would have would either be like long greasy hair or like that nasty yellow bleached hair oh god yeah this is giving me like greenville south carolina like i know yeah it's giving it's giving pablo oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) sorry sam this is like this is like (laughs) too much for us to this point like there's a scene like this in every yeah but that's why i didn't want to say like frog and toad like that was originally the like thought starter but then i was like this is going way too into like goblin core kind of the cottage core like small bean mm-hmm. tender queer thing which is not really like what i wanted to talk about but also regarding like degeneracy like i'm really glad you said that biz because i was kind of trying to contrast this in my head with dark suburbia because that also is kind of like adolescence based aesthetic like the whole euphoria thing of like malaise and like walking around your neighborhood but I think the difference here is that, like, the malaise that this thing is feeling has to do more with people being burdened by great expectations or something like yeah. gifted kid burnout. And it never leads to self-destructive behavior beyond just, like, maybe a lot of coffee and, like, cigarettes. So it's, like, kids that are, like, humanities smart and go to small private liberal arts colleges and they wouldn't do anything, like, super messy besides just like maybe have a really weird like like all have sex with each other but like separately you know that was i mean there's like two sides of that i think because i think in the united states like the brat pack thing it was very like old world crumbling is is what i think a lot of those movies were like in metropolitan or in any of the john hughes movies there there's like a reaction to like the old money like gilded age like new england things kind of like dissipating and then within the 80s there is this new like wall street shark like greed is good boorish striving people Mm -hmm. and i think generally a lot of the reasons why these brats i guess quote unquote were like very disaffected and uh sad were because like they were promised this sort of luxury life of like going to an Ivy League school, um, learning how to like sail a boat and I don't know, just going to like boarding school and stuff. But then whenever they reach the 80s, they realize that those luxuries don't really carry the same weight. And like, like in Dead Poet Society, that's kind of a plot line, right? Where it's like these like luxurious sort of a heritage privileges um, are not really compatible with like the neon frenetic, like technicolor 80s thing. Mm-hmm. People found it like really restrictive. I think it's kind of similar to this like wealth. I mean, that happened in the romantic era too, right? There's like this giant wealth transfer to a new group of people as it did in the 80s. And I think right now there's like a giant wealth transfer from old money to like the new money like silicon valley tech bro or whatever so i think there is sort of that same vibe happening in the culture right now that's making things pretty 80s along Mm -hmm. with the recession there's a really big reject modernity 
embrace tradition theme mm-hmm. throughout all of these kind of texts, which I personally think is so interesting. The 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 true 80s vibe, I think, comes through in this aesthetic where it doesn't come through in dark academia. And I think that's because even though there's a rejection of the aesthetics, the music is still there. It's so interesting. It's like the music is so important to how this is forming online right now. But all of that music is like mainstream music from the 80s. Yeah. That was like considered really technologically advanced um, at the time because it was using synths. And so that's like what I love about this is that it still has that distinctly 80s flavor that's kind of like almost like futuristic at the time, like retro futurism Mm -mm. that in these canon texts and movies was being rejected aesthetically. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun. No, I think what's funny about that too that was the other side of this is like in the british side of it it was a little bit different because it really wasn't as much um old world crumbling old money transferring to new money type thing it was very much like a post-war because i think england in the 80s is still very much post-war and a sort of like out labor outsourcing of like the industrial north and this the North kind of becoming a very desolate, dark kind of place. And all of these bands kind of came out of it, like the Smiths did. And Mm -hmm. like, even like there's just, I think a lot of the mainstream music also ideologically is very compatible to like the people that adopt the aesthetic today, which tend to be like queer people that are intelligentsia or whatever is because I think there's like a lot of like critiques of capitalism in that time. Like the human league had like a side project called like heaven 17. That was like a satire band of like, they were singing songs about how great like the new capitalism is or whatever. It's like very Patrick Bateman-esque. It's like a really good band, I think. Also like England in the eighties was like Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. That was like a really big economic transition because she privatized so many national industries and national resources. And so, yeah, it had that kind of a, that like enhanced gloominess, I think for a lot Mm -hmm. of, a lot of people. And the classified is also like goes insane in England. She was um I'm like president prime minister from 79 to 90. So she was literally <laughs> yeah, there the crazy. whole 80s. Like she was the 80s. He fucked shit up. He did. I, I get why she would make people feel so like anti-establishment. Because they're just like, you're like my fucking grandma. Like, I don't know. I could see why the youths would have hated no, her. Yeah. yeah. But she was also really stuffy. and She wore pussy bows. She wore a lot of pussy bows. Nobody likes yeah. that. That's very stuffy. Nope. It seems like you're being choked out by something. <laughs> but I've been watching a lot of Margaret Thatcher content recently. Like, I watched The Iron Lady. And then I was watching, like, the mm. season of The Crown with Princess Diana. That was, like, the one, mm. the only season I watched. Because I was like, when's Diana coming? And I just, like, started that season. <laughs> I'm actually like kind of liking her vibe even though I think her politics are like extremely stupid and horrible and had irreversible repercussions for the world she gives like a type of girl boss that I like because she was like working class and kind of worked her way up pulling herself up by her bootstraps or whatever I mean you had to be like next level evil and cunty as a woman to rise it's true she really was but you know I, I get why some people are like wow the iron lady but yeah no fuck her but you know that it's also a theme in the last season of The Crown as well, because the prime minister that preceded Tony Blair, who was the Labour Party, was a Tory, so he was conservative, but he also came from working class in South London. Mm-hmm. So you kind of like, even though they have these beliefs that you don't support, you're like, wow, that's really impressive that you did that. Yeah. It's really hard to do. But I also, as you guys know, I'm like really obsessed with the second British invasion. Mm-hmm. If I could speak on it go ahead queen go go on okay so i guess the first thing i want to say is that 
we've talked a lot about how this comes out of dark academia but like dark academia never had a really good catchy soundtrack a lot of it was like classical music from like the 19th century like composers like eric Satie. so it just never really went that hard like you weren't gonna really want to make thirst traps to it and the way that people are making thirst traps to this (laughs) i think you'd make a sad slideshow to it though Mm -hmm. yeah definitely but there is just so much more melancholy present in dark academia and now it's like having this like youthful energy like we said Mm -hmm. but i want to talk about the importance of mtv and this because this whole music genre is encapsulated by the term the second british invasion which references the first british invasion that happened with the beatles in the 60s but this go round, it was like the early 80s to the mid 80s and it was really driven by mtv which was launched in 1981 the second british invasion like they brought this like synth pop and new wave music that was really just like not a thing in the u.s at all and mtv started pushing it really hard and then also it has this like the second British Invasion has a really interesting link to like John Hughes movies. I think I mentioned that earlier in the episode. So Don't You Forget About Me, which is featured in The Breakfast Club, iconically represented the first of three British acts to provide a theme song for a Brat Pack film, followed by John Parr's Hot 100 number one single, St. Elmo's Fire, and then the psychedelic furs Pretty in Pink for the movie Pretty in Pink. And I'm like, wow, this is like a crazy meeting of British and American culture because I think British people... When they look at these John Hughes movies, it's really like foreign to them because it's like this like very stereotypical American high school type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they were considered really deep at the time compared to other depictions of like American high school life. But I just think that's like a really tasty morsel of cultures interacting and creating a really long-lasting genre that is like still so nostalgic for people that obviously have no connection to it. That is really interesting because it comes from such different circumstances now that I'm thinking about it. Because like I watched With Neil and I in at, like the oh, movie theater. Movie. No, it was so good. I love I love that movie. And it I watched it this like art artsy movie theater here in Austin, and they brought out like a British person, a real life British person, to like talk about it. And, <laughs> he, was, crazy. and he was talking about like how he grew up in Britain in the eighties, and he grew up in the north, and he was like, yeah, mm-hmm. like there was still like giant holes from like bombings in World War Two and stuff. Like you could still feel like the desolation like around like the UK and everything like all of these like grand like beautiful like estates and stuff were just crumbling and it just did not really have a good vibe at all and and in the, the United States it was similar but there wasn't really that like dark post-war thing going on it was just kind of like from Connecticut to Miami like type money transfer you know but but they intersected so well yeah, they did. And there's that there's that funny thing you mentioned earlier about like the crumbling of the old world. But I feel like British people have always had a really good handling on like making fun of that. Mm-hmm. Like that's like a big part of With Nail and I is like poking fun about With Nail's like crazy gay aristocrat uncle mm-hmm. who like tries to fuck both of them yeah. and like poking fun at the institution. That's always been part of British humor. Mm-hmm. And then I guess that's also mirrored in like um, the class consciousness and like metropolitan because it's about like the main character is like a middle class Princeton student who's like thrust into this world of Upper East Side elites. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not making fun of it in the same way that British people do, I guess. It's more like it's more like being like, wow, this is like a glowy, crazy yeah. world, even though it has mm-hmm. this its dark sides. And Metropolitan is just um, more charming, and, and it, it's like the quote in the movie, right? Is like the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie is like he watched the <laughs> Buñuel movie and was like, I thought this was going to be actually about how charming the bourgeoisie can be, but mm-hmm. it wasn't. And like, I guess Wood Stillman just wanted to make a movie about how charming it can actually be, and then in a lot of the British media about the bourgeoisie it's more about like oh look at these like bumbling fools you know and like 
yeah it's like I also read this quote last night about that difference, which is really interesting. Yeah. There's a book called Doomed Bourgeois in Love, Essays on the Films of Wood Stillman. And the author or the editor writes, Metropolitan is a conservative film which uses mocking affectation, gentle irony, and a blizzard of witty dialogue to bring us to see what is admirable and necessary in the customs and conventions of America's upper class. That's an interesting point of distinction, I guess, in this. Yeah. I feel like these kinds of forms of media are always like the protagonist is always someone who is like in search of authenticity and meaning. Yeah. And fitting in. And the human condition. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Last Days of Disco is also so good, but that one was more I feel like everyone in Manhattan is like trying to recapitulate that vibe really hard. <laughs> I haven't seen that. I want to see it though. It's really good. Also the sorry, like one last drab point is like I'm obsessed with how the drabness of England mm-hmm. has carried over here. Like, I really am. I read this article from the Washington Post in, like, 1984 or something. It's about the second British invasion. And it says, following the astonishing array of fashions and synthetic sounds produced by Duran Duran and their video bread ilk comes the next wavelet. All the pale young men with their acoustic guitars singing wistful songs about heaven and dreaming. The bright day glow color seemed to have drained away. The new look du jour for bands like Aztec Camera, Prefab Sprout, The Pale Fountains, and Fiction Factory, and also like The Smiths, seem to be drab and nondescript. And I'm like, wow. I can't believe England literally mm, colonized America's like bridge. <laughs> it's true. They literally said like, no, no, no. Like you need to be wearing gray, like yeah. the color of the northern sky. It's because American bands just don't really have that same like legacy of like literature to make their music that funny because mm. I think this stuff that was coming out of the UK at the time, it's definitely like sad and drab, but it's uh, supremely funny, like very, very funny lyrics funny and like and fun. fun. Yeah. And like very cheeky. Yeah. And in the United States, like everything is a lot more literal and our sense of humor is a lot more in your face. And I think it's also the American music industry is still so monopolized by radio and like a baseline level of like catchiness. And I feel like lyrics just matter a bit. Yeah, less. they don't even have to make sense. They just have to like, I don't know, you have to hit the right like syllable combination to like be on rhythm. Yeah, and it's more about like the, the quality of someone's voice rather than what they're saying. I am um, had a conversation with, let's just oh, say, you're talking about. a Nepo son of an, a band of this kind of of this genre. And we were talking about how... I don't know who what? you're talking huh? about. Oh, I'm talking about uh, Wolf Gillespie. It's Toledo's oh. boyfriend. Yeah. Basically, he was. we had a conversation about how, like, this was during, I think, the end of the summer. And the, this past summer was, like, historically the hottest summer on, like, record in the UK. And we're talking about how the UK needs its, like, gloomy, depressing weather and overall atmosphere to create this art. Because people, like can't just go out and sit in the park and like enjoy themselves like they can in like Miami or something like you have to like be really introspective and kind of like be left to your own devices because it's literally like the coal mine (laughs) or write a song basically and how like global warming will destroy this vibe because it's gonna allow the British people to go outside more and sit in the parks because they're like addicted to doing that and they're obsessed with vitamin D oh my god it's like a cultural climate refugee thing like it's just gonna yeah and it's just we need to keep the climate dull and gray in the uk for this cultural exchange to be relevant in the next um 
millennium. Yeah. I was just thinking about that the other day because, yeah, I was thinking about like British culture and I was talking to Barrett about this. He was just saying like how good British music is, but like that's like one of their main cultural exports. And you do have to just, it just seems like so desolate there sometimes that it may, may be like really hard to just romanticize your life. And so like the only way that you can really romanticize your life is through music. It's like its primary function, like you walking around and like able to feel. Yeah, I think it's like, outside is literally like a sensory deprivation chamber like it's completely white i don't know i think that just creates more creativity yeah and people from the a lot of people from the uk especially if you're like working class mm-hmm. you like hate the uk or like you you like it in some ways obviously but you're like this is the most bleak and desolate place and there's mm. always like gagging to go on vacation like they like cannot wait to get out even just like the contrast of like that being where the song Pretty in Pink comes from, and then the movie Pretty in Pink being about the color pink. It's really just too delightful for me. It, over- it overwhelms yeah. me completely. It's so good. Wait, let's talk about Caviar Cove. Oh, yes, this is a very relevant as well. This can kind of tie back to the dying old world and like these like disaffected upper class youths in Ralph Lauren or whatever. But It definitely um, ties back to American Psycho as well because it's like, it it's does. like he has this crazy light, but he's evil and bad. So, yeah. Well, that's what's interesting. I think. Yeah, and also like Wall Street and stuff. But Alexi said this a few months ago when she went to go see Triangle of Sadness. I don't know if you want to recap um, your, uh, your aha moment. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What did my review of Triangle of Sadness say? I think that there has just been, like, a genre of movies that's kind of, like, suffering in paradise. Like, the movie Old was also the same thing. And also the first season of White Lotus was out at this point when I was, like, thinking about this. Like, there's just, like, a kind of masochistic genre that's just, like, wealthy people suffering or, like, disaster movies where, like, the victims are all, like, wealthy or, like, there's always one person that's, like, an Instagram star or something. And I think it's, like, I described it on my Instagram story as just cope because after I saw the movie Triangle of Sadness, which is about, like, a luxury yacht getting in a shipwreck and people getting, like, abandoned on a deserted island, I was, like, looking around at the, like, demographic of people in this movie theater in Brooklyn and they were all just, like, so happy to see, like, rich people suffering. But I was, like, when was the last time you guys were on a yacht? <laughs> it's like, it would be a thing to say, but like, Justin Murphy just put out something that kind of like refined my thinking about how like White Lotus and Triangle of Sadness and also the menu that just came out are all what he calls caviar cope. They serve like a dual function of like allowing people, like normal people to kind of like poke fun at wealthy people and like just think that they're idiots but it also is kind of like a form of vr so you get to experience the lifestyle of like luxury vacations and like fine dining and the lifestyles of the rich and famous but you won't actually like indulge yourself in it because you like you're acting like you're too good for it yeah i really want to like quote this right here because, like, it, I mean, it's a very quotable, like, short piece. And he says, um, 35-year-old PhD moms with sub-zero net worths love the White Lotus because it's like going on a vacation they can't afford. It rationalizes their immiseration. But 50-year-old billionaires also love the White Lotus because, in their mind, the mockery is not directed at them, but the vulgar and neurotic upper bourgeoisie who can't just relax and be grateful. The dog mom thinks she's laughing at the economic elites. The economic elites think they're laughing at preposterous strivers. And I think this is where, like, the Patrick Bateman vibes kind of come in because Javier Cope is a genre that can appeal to, like, all spectrums of people, I think. 
um, who are better. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I feel like no one should be better, but like, I mean, obviously it's a means to criticize rich people while living vicariously through them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the films have like a very interesting subtext where they're criticizing like boorish new money strivers, which is a very um, Patrick Bateman or like Gordon Gecko-esque type character. Like in White Lotus season two, there's like Cameron and then Greg, the husband that's like trying to kill off like the old money, like I guess saint of uh, Jennifer Coolidge or whatever and like take all of our money and give it to like gay guys or whatever um and it really I think that appeals to like all types of people yeah because they're phonies you know yeah yeah that is so crazy like the fact that the gay guys in White Lotus season two I guess spoiler etc that they're like the old money penniless aristocrats yeah and they're trying to kill Jennifer Coolidge who's like the new money neurotic yeah and I think also there's oh, always that, like isn't what she also old money no, she's old money. I was thinking mm-hmm. more her husband. No, I think she's like she's like two generations back, mm-hmm. I think. But like she's supposed to be super impressed with the Europeans because they're like aristocratic. Yeah. Yeah. And she doesn't realize like she actually just has money that they want. Yeah, I think we talked mm-hmm. about that in was it the America episode where we were just talking about like how Americans are kind of insecure about our like relatively short history? Or maybe that was Neuro Summer. Mm-hmm. I think Jennifer Coolidge kind of like personified that. Yeah, it's true. And I think this sort of like cultural thing, it might be because we're so young, is I think in other cultures, there's like this phrase in Mexico that I can't remember. But in other cultures, there's all these like kind of old tales of like kind of aristocrats that are running out of money, like sort of like a Lord Byron-esque figure of like you just like yeah. inherited all this money, you just like spend it all. And there's like a phrase that in- happened in Don Quixote or did I make that up? Or is he just um, actually poor? Yeah, no, he no, he he's like he spent all of his money because he was going crazy because he wanted to be like a medieval knight and he just like bought all this shit. And then I think he still had money, but he just like didn't really know what was going on around him. But like <laughs> I mean, there's just like all these like lessons that I think maybe this media is trying to teach a new country like America that older countries already have, where it's like there's this phrase in Mexico that I can't really remember exactly how to say it, but it's like the father is like a billionaire, the son is a gentleman, and the grandson is a pauper because it's like you go from like working really hard being a billionaire, and then like the son is like a gentleman, and then like the other son will be like a pauper or whatever. And it's just kind of like I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. It's also like a very like strong times create weak men kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. It's very like yeah. That. I was gonna say these are like these are like conservative yeah. vibes. It's like Prager University vibe, being like the rich man to poor son pipeline or something. But I think I, I definitely know what you mean. Also, one thing, this is kind of unrelated, but I think like in the Justin Murphy the article, there was something else that is kind of, I think, related to why Caviar Cope is so like, I guess, appealing to people is he he wrote down right now the optimized formula is grandiose scenery plus absurd, absurd wealthy people hilariously affirming and negating everything at once plus no clear pop- plot value system that could offend or stress anyone. And I think this is really interesting because of the new season of the Kardashians. I could see a lot of people talking about how it's almost like um, very drama free compared to the E! Kardashians. And it made me kind of think that it was almost like long form day in the life content. Like you have kind of like day in the life of like me living in a mansion in Los Angeles or whatever. But it's just kind of a whole TV show about that with the occasional like news headline that like they inevitably have to talk about. And I just think that's interesting. That's something that's going to keep rising. I think it's um, less plot, more be our style like day in the life type things you know i think it's also quite um unifying i don't know if you guys watched the new like knives out movie but it has the highest viewership of like any netflix movie ever 
And it's really funny because it has a lot of like specific cultural references, but this kind of ties into the Balenciaga episode. The average person, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, which like obviously your country is super divided, just loves to make fun of like famous people and especially like influencers. Maybe that's a little bit of a Brat Pack vibe. It's just like the value of like normal people and like authenticity coming back Mm. yeah and also substance because a lot of people always make fun of the kardashians because they're like they have no talent or whatever they have no like you know and it's Mm -hmm. also like oh these singers are all auto-tuned like you know it's like a very vintage or historic like criticism of like the new type of fame but i think the brat pack vibe is very much like i'm interested in like writers that fought in like the spanish civil war and like wrote poetry about it and then like (laughs) killed themselves by drinking too much and like never really were happy or something yeah, I think we're all getting on the same page about that. Yeah. It's interesting because it's also like there's some sort of Nepo baby vibe. In the Nepo baby episode, I talked about how people admire Nepo babies because they're like special because of their inherent aura slash like their bloodline. And there's the same thing that happens if you go to an elite school. Like there's like a certain specialness that like, and I'm like reading Prozac Nation right now and like she kind of talks about this as well. How she thinks that like walking around the Harvard yard as a backdrop will kind of like fix her lifelong depression. And it's like, even when people have really fucked up lives and do fucked up things, when they have that element of having this like semi-aristocratic background or going to an elite school, it's also much more interesting and like we kind of let them off the hook a lot. I think it's just because like the consequences are a lot less scary. That's why contrasting this with dark suburbia, the self-destructiveness of that and like I think it just has to do with the amount of conflict or like real problems that people face. I think like comparatively feeling alienated and kind of like somber. Mm, hating your parents. Yeah and hating your parents and feeling like pressure from going to an elite school isn't the same thing as you know having parents that abuse you or like substance abuse problems so even if people like do dabble in substance abuse when they're like going to a really nice college you just know that like it'll be fine because they will like come out of it and then refer to it back Mm -hmm. as they're like you know crazy days that's like such a Mm -hmm. thing in all of these books about how there's like no consequences for their truly fucked up actions i think that's like a a plot line in saint almost fire too because it begins with rob Lowe. it's all these kids are like it's like different class spectrums right because like one of them's like a waiter one of them's like a lawyer and it's like it's very diverse like class group Mm -hmm. or whatever but like one of them got in like a drunk driving accident at the beginning of the film and then like instead of it being like very serious like he gets like arrested and stuff he gets like bailed out by his like super rich girlfriend and then they all go out drinking afterwards like it's fine and then i fell asleep so i don't know what happens (laughs) afterward maybe he does face consequences but every movie from the 80s ends up just being kind of like happy like i feel like john hughes movies all have like a happy ending like there's like the breakfast club like pumping your fist in the air thing and that movie is kind of about like not having consequences Mm -hmm. like they go to detention but they have so much fun that it becomes like a form of punishment yeah or like another movie that i think about this is so abstracted but like you know those houses that are in all the john hughes movies that are like these really beautiful plush waspy houses Mm -hmm. like thinking about how in the movie labyrinth which has is that jennifer connelly yeah it is. yeah so that's obviously much more fantastical than anything that has to do with this but the house where it starts off is like that yeah she has this vibe like her general vibe but then like the fact that she like goes through this magical really harrowing journey and then just like lands back in her house. Even in Wes Craven movies as well, for the most part. That's true. Also, I think we would need to point out that the eighties was like the 
start of the teen movie. Like there were not really teen movies before the eighties. Like it was really proliferated and it became like the number one genre of the time. And I think in general, like almost everybody in their teenage years, like doesn't really face that serious of consequences because you're underage and it's not like anyone can try you as an adult if you're not doing anything that bad, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I was listening to the podcast articles of interest by Avery Truffleman and her most recent series is a really, really amazing multi-episode season basically on preppy style and she talks about how the idea of the teenager i think we all could know this but like really was invented in like the 60s in terms of how mm-hmm. teenagers dress because it used to be like you went from dressing like a kid to wanting to dress like an adult but then this mm-hmm. whole new market of fashion developed where it was specifically targeting people in, in their teen and early 20s mm-hmm. and i think that definitely shows up in in the way people were, were dressing yeah because like ivy style is all about like wearing these classic clothes but then there's something very like disheveled about them. And that's like the teenager quality that you wouldn't have yeah. as an adult. Degage Ivy has <laughs> some friends in mm-hmm. it. Alexi, you you mentioned a lot the like pictures of kids running, like blurry pictures of kids running. Oh, yeah, it's all over our Pinterest. That's like that. Oh it's like God, just yeah. like that scene from The Dreamers. I feel like The Dreamers is yeah. also a pretty uh, good reference point because it's like, I don't know, like incestuous friend groups are like a big part of this, I think. Yeah. yeah. Like the Brat Pack from the 80s probably was like that. And so was the Rat Pack, probably. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's incestuous true. friend groups are a really important developmental rite of passage, I would say. It's true. It's true. It's also just the vibe of like when you're a young person, it's hard to distinguish romantic love from like platonic love. And so you just end up fucking all your friends when you realize that's like something that's possible. But if you do that, you must take a picture of you guys like running around at dusk in front of some kind of like storied institution. Mm-hmm. It's true. But I think it's funny because like the dreamers is about like actual incest. And like yeah. there's another <laughs> there's another incest. <laughs> well, that's just like French people. <laughs> or aristocrats, you're Yeah. But there's another incest plot and I won't say which book because it like ruins in one of the books we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, one of the books we're talking yeah. about. There's another incest plot. And so it is like there's very something cl- Greek and classical about incest. I mean yeah. that happened in the White Lotus, like the yeah, when we thought that the guy was fucking his uncle oh yeah yeah he that was incest vibes it was also giving pederasty which was also just like so classic i do think yeah incest is always kind of like an aristocratic vibe though and that is yeah. like um you know i think it like emma jane austen she's like marry your cousin i'm like in love with my cousin those are i don't know what that accent is, but <laughs> Mary, that's um, like a long island accent <laughs> We can also perhaps edit this out, but I was with my friend the other day and she was like, oh yeah, my friend is coming. She like is like an aristocrat, like an actual aristocrat. And like, she has an injury because she has like aristocratic like diseases. Like she she has like a broken ankle or something because she has like aristocratic diseases. And I was like, damn, I'm a long way from home. (laughs) I mean, I work with a lot of aristocrats, but they're all kind of like mid. Yeah, I think none of them were like as stunningly beautiful or like had royal qualities. They're just giving like... Yeah, you have a lot working against you if you have that bloodline. Like, it's true. I felt kind of that way whenever I went to that wedding with a bunch of Yale people, right? Because I was like, oh my God, this is like a Yale wedding. The Yale boys are going to be there. Like, this would be such interesting, like, dinner conversation. And we were, I was like, basically in the wedding. And so I went to like every event and stuff. And so you're stuck with like this group of people. And they were so mid, so boring, low-key a little dumb. And like everything that they said, like they gave no effort on trying to be like intelligent or interesting whatsoever. They were just talking about like Ted Lasso the whole time. And I was like... (laughs) That's like what I keep trying to talk about is like the halo effect that you have mm-hmm. if you have this type of association, mm-hmm. whether you're an aristocrat or you went to like Yale, 
It's that yeah. someone's going to go into a, a wedding and be like, oh my God, like I'm nervous to meet these people. But then you meet them and they're like obsessed with Ted Lasso. <laughs> yeah. And there's just this, some of this shit they were saying, I was just like literally bonehead things where I was like, are you kidding me right now? Like, is this really like our best and brightest? Like, you know. Yeah, no, people that like, I think in the past should have been like the Algonquin dinner club having sparkling conversations and like have the cultural literacy to do stuff like that. Now they just talk about TV. Like rich people just only want to talk about like mm-hmm. Netflix mm-hmm. and maybe New York Times it's articles. True. Yeah, but that's giving lost generation 3.0 as well though because i guess i guess yeah i guess i wasn't thinking about rich people when i just said that but i was thinking more about like lost generation 3.0 and how it's like people have a lack of dinner party skills i guess you could say Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh god a person who was like uh, like a european you can throw a really good dinner party like they need to be protected at all costs Mm -hmm. we need to keep in touch with their their culture it's important no, dinner parties really, I'm setting out like a bulletin to the public. I'm literally begging you, like, please make dinner parties a thing again. Like, I don't care if you have to move in. I need to do this myself. They're a huge thing yeah, in New York, are. though. Like, massive. Yeah. I just um, ditched a dinner party last night because I just didn't want to go. Honestly, if you do them too often, they can be a little yeah. exhausting. Yeah. It's like the Alison Roman effect, though. Like, she really, I, I got her cookbook. Yeah, so did William. And, um, and I was like, literally put this away. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, could, we should, we should, we should make the cook, we should make the recipes together. There was like also a really weird, thing a couple years ago where like rich kids downtown they probably still do this but like like semi-professionally host dinner parties so it'd be like they would like have a cooking night like at a mm-hmm. restaurant do you remember that that yeah, was crazy. kind of I, I feel like also maybe covid yeah made this kind of a huge thing because people just started hanging out at home a lot and like everyone was kind of forced to like decide who their like friend group was whenever people were like pretending to care mm-hmm. about covid and they were like this is my pod and like yeah. we'll get dinner together and like go to the park together and have picnics and shit so i think that became like more of a thing no cocktail parties are better than dinner parties i would say I think they're more conducive to conversation because you don't have to like actually eat you can just like snack exactly and then you can kind of like walk around and stuff i like watching people eat i think it's fun like when people have to like have a conversation between eating a full plate of like a turkey leg Mm -hmm. i like it but i have been in situations where i've not enjoyed it for sure so i definitely know what you mean i was just seeing this guy on tiktok who's like this gay guy who's called the modern butler he's like a he's a butler (laughs) oh yeah no he was talking about how like how he hates he was like when i try to plan date nights for my clients i tell them to like go an hour before their dinner reservation like sit at the bar and like He's just talking about how in Europe, mm-hmm. they won't try to, like, rush you out as soon as you finish eating. And, like, you won't get the check for, like, another, like, 40 minutes after you finish. There's just way more time to, like, actually enjoy each other's company rather than just, like, eating. Yeah, in Mexico, we have sobre mesa, which is, like, after yeah. dinner, it's required to be at the table for three hours or four hours wow. or even longer. And have, like, a carajillo, which is just, like, a coffee, like, liqueur thing. And like, cool. I just remember as a child that was like whenever I would put like two chairs together and like sleep on it like a bed <laughs> yeah, and nobody would leave. But now it's fun. Now that I can partake in conversation, it's fun. But when I was a child, it was like, a nightmare. <laughs> the lost generation doesn't know shit about this. Like we need to like I don't even think that they could talk for that long. Yeah. That's what I was gonna say. It's like a skill to be you have to be comfortable with not saying that much sometimes. If you're together for three to four hours, like certain comfort with restful pauses etc i kind of just say quips like mm-hmm. that's my thing like you just have to like say one sentence and like mm-hmm. make everyone laugh and then there's the windbag who has to carry the rest of it the windbag yeah, you have to always yeah. have a windbag at one of those the percussion of it i mean it's all about rhythm the ham the windbag the quip <laughs> <at>. <laughs> the ugly loser 
Just kidding. <laughs> the butler. The modern the butler. butler. The mouse. The, the crumb. <laughs> I'm the crumb. The crumb? Wait, what's the, the crumb, crumb? Sweeper. No, the crumb is like what the mouse tries to eat. It's actually just a crumb. It's just Aww. a crumb. Yeah, like, and the mouse is literally a mouse. I feel like everyone needs to, needs to find their dinner party persona. Like, not everyone contributes the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah, I think I'm a big I'm a big quipper. My dad is the windbag, like, but it's like so good because he's like, um, if you're eloquent, being a windbag is good. Mm-hmm. Like, there are some yeah. stupid yeah. windbags. Oh my god, like, yeah. I'm not gonna name names. <laughs> but I feel like if they're friendly, that's okay. There's also the I was gonna say the clown, but that's the same as the ham. The ham. The ham. Well, they're actually not yeah. the same. I feel the clown is more hated than the ham. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. That's true, yeah. The Jester. I think it would have to be rebranded as Jester because that gives more dinner party. Yeah. Oh my god, what else is there to say about this? This is honestly such a rich text. Yeah. yeah. I guess like haircuts, uh, that was the one thing I forgot to talk about. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, the haircuts are like yeah. essential. So on that point, we, the Scarlet Fox's <laughs> TikTok account, which we'll link, like, they have this crazy voluminous hair that is grease and like, the, I guess the most contemporary reference is Steve Harrington yeah. from Stranger Things. But to me, that's really what sets us apart from, like I said, the Mac DeMarco vibe is like, there's a certain attention to your appearance that's there that is much more like, um, it's not dandyish, mm-hmm. but it's definitely not a contemporary thing for in mass culture. The vibe of this, the messiness comes from more just like proportion and like the slouchiness rather than like an actual dirtiness, you know? You think these... Yeah, it's just like, disheveled. Yeah, it's not... Disheveled because they're like caring too much mm-hmm. about other stuff. So that's like... What slouch mm-hmm. is to dressing, I would say shag is to the hairstyles for this aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone can admit that the hairstyles that are in vogue for the past few years are kind of like soft mullets, wolf cuts, curtain bangs, a general like overgrown and unkempt androgynous swag. And yeah, it's kind of like the natural hair movement for white people. Like even though there is the whole like Dyson Airwrap thing, I feel like a lot of white girls I know maybe during COVID realize that they have curly hair and like are way more mm-hmm. into like texture. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big COVID thing because people had a lot more time to focus on um, their own appearances. And like let their hair air dry and stuff. Yeah, exactly. That is like such a thing right now. Like, yeah, I mean, I think with boys in general, I think it's just like the, what what do we call this? It's like the mass altification of everybody. Mass indie. Yeah, like mass indie. That was just like a, I think it's like frat boys and stuff are now wearing like little earrings and like mm. mullets and stuff and are like, I listen to Aphex Twin. Like, yeah, and frat boys like wear Carhartt. Yeah, that's another thing too is that I think menswear being such a um, powerhouse of the culture right now and it's really like a way for men to signal like that they are I don't know one thing I think about the menswear apocalypse or whatever in these past few years that I think it's like a way for men to solve the like friendship crisis and I think it really is kind of solving it for them because they're like oh do you know this like hypewear brand or whatever and like it's an easy way to like get into conversations with people because a lot of the men I know are very fashion oriented and a lot of the men in Austin are too. And it's like varieties of whether it's good or not. But like, I always see like a male friend of mine, like see another guy like at the bar that's wearing like, like a niche like brand on Instagram. And they'll go up to him and be like, nice shirt, bro, whatever. <laughs> and then they make like a new friend. I love that. And I think with women, it's, we still have yet to master that. Because I think women are now experiencing the friendship crisis more than men. That's true. That's why they have to go on like hot girl walks that are organized on TikTok. Oh, there's one in like Town Lake in Austin that I always see. And I always get TikToks about that. Who leads it? No idea. I guess also just think about the hair thing. Like, it's really interesting because, so I guess for context, our next episode will also touch on the 80s, but in a different way. 
Mm-hmm. And obviously in the 80s, feathered oh, hair yeah. was a really big thing. And I feel like I was actually just watching the music video for Last Christmas by Wham, which is the song that's part of this on TikTok. And I guess is really connected to the next episode, but they have like really feathered hair and you don't really see that. Like, I guess that's something that did show up on e-boys for a while, like having floppy yeah. kind of feathered-esque hair. But now it's like evolving to something greasier and more, I guess, like sculptural versus like textured. I would say sculptural is like a big thing. Like big hair mm-hmm. is just, it's in for sure. It's in, Like you really yeah. don't see many people with just mm-hmm. flat iron straight hair. Except maybe black women. Yeah. Yeah. I have straight hair. I love your hair, Biz. Thanks, I, that was one of my uh, favorite parts of going to New York is because I know that you love to brush your hair. Oh and God. the first time we were yeah. hanging out, you just pulled out a hairbrush and started brushing your hair. And I was like, Finally. That's like, actually <laughs> really weird that I did that. <laughs> yeah. You're like, wait a minute, I need to brush my hair. You started brushing hair. I, I like, will yeah. say it was really hot then. And I feel like when it's hot, your hair gets like more tangly. Yeah. Because it's like the sweat and everything else going on. Also, that was the frizziest my hair has ever been. Yeah. Because I was using Olaplex and I realized that, like, if you don't have, like, heat damage, don't use Olaplex. It's mm. too much protein for your hair. It makes it frizzy. That's interesting. I yeah, didn't know that. Is, I was just thinking about how crunchy my hair is. I think yeah. you have beautiful hair, too. This is a good hair, hair process. Yeah, we have diverse hair perspectives here. Definitely, yeah. But can the average guy get this hair, I guess? Because I feel like the whole thing about, for example, Steve Harrington... He seems to naturally have a good hair gene, like very <laughs> thick, beautiful locks. I mean, I was talking to Patrick about mm-hmm. this, and he was literally like considering getting a keratin treatment. <laughs> and I was like, I don't even think they do that on men because like your Stop. hair grows out so fast. <laughs> Sorry, if, you, actually... if you have a certain texture of like kind of shrubby, curly hair as a man, like there's just not that much you can oh my God. do. Gotta fade. <laughs> I, don't I think embrace it. I think you're like a mini fro. Oh yeah, like a Jufro. Get a little jufro, yeah. I guess that is totally part of this, though, is that the the Brat Pack was pretty waspy. Mm-hmm. So they, like, I guess had yeah. not that many different hair textures between them. I, okay, so Emilio Estevez was, like, the co-president of the Brat Pack, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why is his name Emilio Estevez? He's Cuban. He's Cuban, but he's also part of the Sheen dynasty. Yeah. And is that, mm-hmm. they also Cuban? They're all Cuban, yeah. Okay, okay. So why does he have a different name? <laughs> uh, there's something. There's something. I think like Charlie Sheen changed his name or someone. Wait, I have it. I have it. So Emilio Estevez is the older brother of Charlie Sheen. They're both the son of Martin Sheen, whose real name is Ramon Antonio <laughs> Gerardo Estevez. Where the fuck did he get Sheen from? Oh my god. <laughs> That's a good name. That's a good name for sure. Yeah. Okay, so I guess it's the classic thing where Emilio Estevez didn't want to ride into the business as Martin Sheen's son. Oh, okay. Okay, Not so... Anti-Nepo name change. Wow, this is so interesting to me. Oh, also yeah. on this note, just talking about men, like, there's, like, really strong homo vibes, which we've kind of mentioned already, mm-hmm. but, like, I guess the Brat Pack didn't specifically have homo vibes, but, like, the larger canon is very gay. It's true. Like, Dark Academia was really formed as like a queer aesthetic and like it's obsessed with this movie Maurice which is I I believe like a gay prep school novel that was turned into a movie starring Hugh Grant is there anything that actually happens Mm -hmm. that's gay in Dead Poet Society or is it just gay because it's a boy's school like is there one trouble so it's like gay subtext yeah it's like um the guy that kills himself because he's really into theater (laughs) and his dad won't let it be literally me you know so it's like you know 
So it's like very yeah. strong gay subtext. <laughs> yeah, but then in, in the other things, there's like it's like not a subtext. It's just part of the text, I guess. Yeah. But in like different iterations. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just implied, you know. Yeah, the thing about this is it's way more carefree, I guess, because like the dark academia thing was all about this like sense of longing that the queer community really relates to. Like if you weren't able to like come out in your teen years. And that's, like, super exacerbated and like, an all-boys school or something like that. So it makes, like, a really interesting... Yeah, the longing and yearning. Yeah. The longing and yearning of it all is an important part of The Lost Generation 3, I would say. Yeah. Oh, this gets into, Alexi, what you said during the Americana episode about, like, cowboys and, like, gay people, like, wanting to, like... gay cowboys. That's, like, the boarding school fantasy, right? Where it's, like, finding a partner when you're gay just become too accessible and there is, like, a subgroup of gay guys that, like, kind of romanticize like when things are like a little bit more difficult and like you know yeah and i think the the bourgeois like element of this whole style contributes a similar vibe because it's like more secretive i guess and also yeah that's why like originally the frog and toad thing like i was on pinterest Mm -hmm. and like looking at stuff like that and it was just a little bit too they them like i think the whole thing about this vibe is like yeah there's a lot of queer subtext but it's more just like experimental and like less i don't know maybe because of like the adolescence aspect like i think it's just less focused on like actually identifying as gay and it's more just about experiencing attraction and like questioning and you know subverting things like masculinity and femininity i think that's like the cool thing about the styles like if a girl dresses like this it's a little bit like soft butch and if a guy dresses like this his parents will be like maybe he's gay but like there's a good amount of plausible deniability that makes it kind of like flirty for both genders so true. I also think that, like, in all of these texts and, like, movies and stuff, like you said, there's a lot of gay happenings, but it's not still socially acceptable, really, because they still come from these, like, waspy traditional mm-hmm. families. Yeah. Like, for example, in Rules of Attraction, like, Sean Bateman has, like, this gay relationship, but he kind of, like, never really acknowledges it within himself. And then, like, there's all these different gay relationships, but no, they're never, like, codified or, like, and they just call everyone, like, slurs all the time, <laughs> even when they're, like, participating in the same behavior. Through downtown. <laughs> well, that's yeah. very, like, Frog and Toad. It's, like, because I, I, when I Googled it for the first time, there's just a bunch of, like, NPR articles, like, the queer-coded, like, subtext of Frog and Toad. Like, they're, like, Bert and Ernie, but for, like, children's literature. Sure. Yeah, Frog and Toad is a little bit like too maybe like wholesome or just like small bean. Like the whole tender queer thing is just like not quite right for the Yeah. No. It's just not preppy enough. Like you still have to have that that preppy edge to literally straighten out the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Also, I feel like there's always like cheating scandals or like affairs or like incest in all of the movies and like literature and media that surrounds all of this, you know. So there has to be like some sort of like darkness, right? That's like romantic and like sexy, you know. It is sexy. like beneath all of this all. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is, I think generally, like, this is the most digestible aesthetic that has come out of the 80s. Like, I think it's pretty difficult to, like, recreate the, like, Cindy Lauper, like, Pat Benatar. Like, mm-hmm. That's just so costumey, like. Mm-hmm. And we already yeah. have, like, one costume era, and that's, like, Y2K. Like, we can't have, like, another one, you know? I guess the way we can think about this in a way is, like, on that note, that Ryan Finn, I think, invented the term true thousands, which mm-hmm. I think I mentioned already. But, like. This would be like true 80s because mm-hmm. I know that people obviously wore a lot of fugly stuff in the 80s, but I was also listening to, once again, articles of interest. And Avery Trumpman talks about how in the 80s, a lot of manufacturers were trying to push these like super short tiered, oh God, they're called like pom pom skirts or something. I can't remember what the actual name of them is, but like women literally rejected them in mass because they wanted to wear these mm-hmm. styles that were easier to move around in and weren't as like hyper feminine mm-hmm. and hyper girly. 
So it is fun to think about this in the context of being like true thousands for the mm. 80s, I guess. I think it might be, yeah. Because I, I do think like when I see old photos of my mom in the 80s, she dressed a lot like this. And I don't really even, yeah, like all of her friends and stuff. I think it was just like most people did dress in more muted colors back then and wore like slouchy big shirts, like uh, high-waisted pants. like And, yeah, and even if you were feminine, you were wearing like a knee-length skirt. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I do like this vibe a lot. I think it's, I mean, it's classic for a reason and it's persisted for a reason. I think it's very flattering to a large variety of people, you know? Yeah, and also, I guess it's worth mentioning that most people who are in their early 20s now slash teens, their parents are Gen Mm -hmm. X. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, there's, like, this, there is this tangible, nostalgical quality, which is, like, looking at pictures of your parents when they were in their Mm -hmm. 20s or teens or whatever it may be, and actually taking inspiration from even, like, their closet slash their, like, personal history. So it does make it, like, a lot more real than maybe, like, older millennials whose parents were boomers who um, were dressing differently at this time, like, a little bit differently. Should we do Woody Rathers? I kind of believe soon, maybe. Yeah. Mm. Let's do one. Just one. Just one? That's sad. That is sad. Would you rather catch the (laughs) rye or eat breakfast with the breakfast club? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Breakfast with the breakfast club. I'm hungry. Yeah. Let's see. I don't know. I feel like... Catching the rye seems deeper. I don't even know what that means. I don't even. I never read that book. Not I I did read it. That was the worst would you rather ever, guys. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I I liked it. That was good. It made me hungry. I'm, I'm, gonna go I'm really breakfast. hungry. I think that's why I said that. I was <laughs> yeah. like rye breakfast. Well, I I had my breakfast club this morning, but you guys didn't have. Something. It was literally like a yeah. club. You could have clubbed yeah. someone with that. Would you guys? Okay, so would you guys rather? This is, I guess, an easier one to answer. Would you guys rather live in like the Brett Easton Ellis cinematic universe or the Donna Tart cinematic universe? Brett Easton Ellis. The guys are kind of hotter. I read Glamorama over the break, and it was really good. Yeah, yeah, that's having a moment right now. They really bum me out though. like they're really hard to read sometimes but oh that's another thing dark like, soul evil gay guys are really trending in culture right now like white lotus mike mike white has like a kind of puppeteer like kind of ryan murphy uh, ryan murphy he's but he's like even if you think he's, he's not influencing you like he is yeah he's yeah. never gonna go away dude wait did you finish your would you rather biz well, you're the only person that answered that. Oh, okay. No, I, I think also Brett Easton Ellis, maybe, just because I'm, like, a bit more of a like, acidic person, so, like, I don't know, like, people were a bit more mean then, and, like, I would kind of, like, laugh out loud reading, I don't know, they were just more, like, cunty yeah. characters. They're definitely way cuntier. Like, I feel like it's, like, the dark academia versus, like, the cropped out arc- academia. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. Like, dark academia. Chaotic like, academia. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I would probably yeah have a much more peaceful life in the Donna Tart cinematic universe, but the Brett Easton Ellis cinematic universe is like way bigger because all of his books connect to each other mm-hmm. versus the secret history is like more of a standalone. And also, yeah, I don't really relate to like loneliness and like I haven't read the secret history. I don't really know, but I'm just assuming that's something that happens. It's like kind of about loneliness, <laughs> but it's more like I would actually say the Brett Easton Ellis characters are more lonely. <laughs> They're like they're like they're like more existentially lonely. Yeah, but they have more friends. Yeah, but they're like Robin Williams lonely. Mm. What's that Robin Williams quote like? Oh, God, the saddest people smile the brightest. 
Is that one? I think people would just like put that quote over pictures of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like a like I've never felt lonelier than like in a room full of people or whatever. One of those like yeah. that's where Gatsby. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Gatsby was definite influence on this as well. Mm-hmm. Well, he's he's the OG new money guy. Like he's OG new money, but it's he's like an OG more, simp I guess. as well. Yeah, OG simp. Yeah, this is there's some intersections, some cross sections here. Um, last mm-hmm. question: Who is you guys' favorite member of the Rat Pack? The actors, not the writers. Honestly, like, I'm not that familiar with any of them except Rob Lowe. I like Emilio Estevez, fellow white Latino. I don't <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> like, I definitely uh, like his vibe, too, because I feel like he also, like, he's obviously good looking, but he's not, like, Rob Lowe type. So it kind of made me think that, like, this whole aesthetic is more about things you can control versus being, like, really chatted up, which is cool. Yeah, that's true. I kind of want to come up with where it has something to do with, like, being kidnapped on a sailboat, because I feel like <gasps> that's really something... It's like kidnapped on the sailboat or um mm, what's like another like preppy it has activity. Been like a winter thing because like mm-hmm. I feel like all these universes are like fall winter. Mm-hmm. Um kidnapped on a sailboat in the Hamptons or lost in the woods while hunting on your British estate with like a beagle. Um, oh I do that'd be nice. Okay, the beagle really changes things. I feel like it's important to have one. I would use the beagle. Mm-hmm. I would like the beagle. It would quell my loneliness. But I feel like also, I would let myself die in a sailboat, I think. Because I think that just, like, the temptation just to lay in the sun and die is a lot greater. Because I think it's, like, in the woods, you would get cold. And I feel like you would just kind of feel, like, tempted to roast to death on a sailboat. Because, like, you know what goes. Yeah. Once you start laying in the sun, it's hard to get up. Yeah, that's true. I yeah, feel like then true. you would be true. rocked to sleep also. Just kind of, like... Yes, exactly. Okay, yeah, you've actually changed my mind. Also in The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is kind of this vibe yeah. a little bit, but, like, Euro Summer version, yeah. there mm-hmm. is a death in a sailboat. Mm-hmm. And he, like, lies down next to his friend's dead body <sighs> in the sailboat and holds him homosexually. Yeah. I feel like that group is, like, the Love 90s brat pack, for sure. And I'm sure there was, like, a name for it that was probably, like, <laughs> the Boston... <laughs> britain crew or something because it's like it's like jude law and matt damon the boss babies <laughs> yeah the boss babies the boss babies okay well i think that's everything for this episode yeah that was good great job guys um yeah i feel like we cracked the case yeah mm-hmm. this yeah got to the bottom of it it's so interesting it really is i'm gonna throw on a flannel and go wander around the city Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna go have like a black cup of coffee in a Ooh. diner. Yeah, like, I'm gonna get on campus. Get my moleskin you know? out. <laughs> yeah, guys, I got a moleskin that has my name on it, engraved. It's actually so cute. I can show it to you right now. That is so cute. It's like, and I wait. I, I write it. it like <laughs> Jackson oh, got it for me at Selfridges. I think on a whim. It was very nice. Oh, that's so sweet. Uh, I would because. recommend this to people who are listening. If you get like. <laughs> get a notebook yeah. on. <laughs> oh god that'd be so sad if i like lost mine because there's too many in the world and they got confused but i honestly <laughs> feel like moleskins come alive when they're not like a nasty earth co- color as well like why is this one a cheeky red mm. it's so cheeky wow yeah red is a good color having bright red accessories is very much this aesthetic like holden caulfield's mm-hmm. red hat yeah mm-hmm. or like little red mary jeans or something yeah corral shoes yeah. 
Corel shoes. That's exactly what I was thinking. I almost bought a bright red bag. Then I was like, I just will feel too much like one of those like edits of like someone in Paris where everything's in black and white and then they have like mm. a red balloon. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That was I think that was the movie. The red. I'm just thinking of like the bank boy running around. (laughs) Oh yeah, it's literally me though. God, red balloons. I feel like that belongs to another aesthetic. Banksy is very like industrial north as well. So why do you you want Banksy? I don't know. He's he's really important. I don't know. It's like in every episode. He's important. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see you guys next episode. It's kind of might be a little bit of a part two. We're still working it out, Mm -hmm. but hopefully, we'll uh, continue the conversation there, and you guys can um, learn and grow with us. Probably should we should we tease our um, our special endeavor? Yeah, I think so. So, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, we've been doing this for around two years and it's been such like an amazing journey and growing and learning with you guys like i said it really has happened so we just want to feel closer to our community of listeners and we also want to um diversify our portfolio of content in a little bit of a rookie way so we are proud to announce that we will be opening a patreon very soon that will feature like special bonus content from us in a variety of forms including like an extra episode every month and a discord and whatever fun blog posts and ephemera we see fit to provide for you guys Mm -hmm. and it's really like we're brimming with ideas and like i think this will be a good forum for us to kind of like talk to you guys and see what you like and expand like Honestly, every time we record, we're like, we could do this for like six more hours. So I'm really excited that we'll be able to like, you know, expand on that. We also are such a research heavy podcast. We always have so much leftover research whenever we're done with an episode. And there's also stuff that constantly comes up like in our group chat and stuff that we forget to talk about or... Yeah, like stuff that you'll email us to where we're just like, oh shit, like we want to talk about this more. Yeah. Also, yeah, we want to hear you guys' input and stuff because everyone we're really happy with our fans because everyone is so nice and normal and really cool and sweet um and hopefully like that continues like on this next phase of our podcast yeah we're really excited um and i can't wait to um, interact with you guys more (laughs) yes so stay tuned we'll make more announcements in the near future yeah and thanks to everyone who's yeah. already subscribed even though we didn't like technically open it like that was a pleasant surprise yeah, that was like a total accident we didn't know you guys could do that until y'all started paying us we we're like stop we actually me. didn't know how you guys found that button because we didn't see it <laughs> didn't honestly see no, no it's gonna see the button it's very flattering that you're so eager to yeah you guys are very sweet <laughs> yeah. but yeah you'll you'll get something yes, in return for you that. will very soon in the works in the works guys yay all right well until next episode lots of love i bid you adieu, adieu. <laughs> bye bye